Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learning so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's episode is with one of my very best friends, Jimmy Dunn. He's the Vice Chairman and Senior Managing Principal at Piper Sandler. He was one of the founders of Sandler O'Neill and Partners, which was acquired by Piper Jaffrey in 2020. And he's renowned for how he led his firm in the wake of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center. 66 of his associates died that day, including the firm's founder, Herman Sandler, and Jimmy's best friend, Chris Quackenbush. Now you're going to learn that Jimmy is really gifted with the ability to think about something from someone else's perspective and then anticipate what they need. And that's at the heart of what makes him such an inspiring leader. Jimmy made the incredible decision early on in the wake of the attacks that the firm needed to provide for the families of fallen associates, including a college education for every child who lost a parent. I can remember like it was yesterday. I was sitting on a runway getting ready to take off for an investor meeting in San Francisco, and those towers went down. Man, was that devastating. Can you imagine having it happening to your entire firm? Well, Jimmy's ability to anticipate the needs of others not only helped him lead through this crisis, but it also helped him prepare for that awful day before it even arrived. And it's a wonderful reminder for all of us to look out for the people we serve by thinking about what they need even before they do. It's such a privilege to talk to Jimmy today, and I know you're going to be so inspired by his incredible empathy and passion to do the right thing for his people. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Jimmy Dunn III. Jimmy, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Well, I'm delighted to do it, David. You're my favorite interviewer. <laughs> Jimmy, as, as, as you are so well aware, this is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Uh, we all remember where we were when, when that happened. Tell us where you were at and, and what happened to your firm. Well, uh, sure, David. I was trying to qualify for the U.S. Ben Amateur Championship. I just left Chris and Herman that Monday at, at the World Trade Center. And you know, I hope I'm not wasting a lot of my time and effort. And I, oddly enough, I had that very same feeling a couple of Sundays ago when I drove to New Jersey to try to qualify for the senior round this year. But you know, I, 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 anyway, so I uh, I set out that morning. Uh, you know, it was a lonely night tonight. I, I had a I, I did not. It was an odd feeling. I didn't feel good. And uh, but I got up the next day and I went over to the qualifier and there was a delay. But then we started out and I. You know, I hit a, a very good shot to my second shot, and uh, I was off and running. And after about four or five holes, I think I was one under par, and a man from the USGA had come out and told me I had to call the office. And uh, so I, he was determined to get me in. He wouldn't tell me what it was. And then when he was driving me back to the clubhouse, uh, I, I remembered Herman and Herman saying when I left the day before, "Look, Chris is going to be here tomorrow." I'm going to be here tomorrow. Nothing is going to happen. You always call in before you start and get yourself worked up. I was on the trading side pretty much at that time, and although I'd moved over to banking a little bit. And uh, he said, so don't call in. And uh, 
I didn't. And then, and so I remember thinking, what possibly could go wrong? Herman and Chris are there. I prefer they make the decision rather than me, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, Jimmy, you, you lost 66 out of 171 associates, including Herman Sandler, your, your mentor, Chris Quackenbush, your, your best friend. How'd you possibly manage through that crisis? Well, you know, I think like a lot of us, I had had uh, good parents, good family, um, faith, education. And I, I, I always viewed this a little differently. I, I, my view was always, what else would I possibly do? I mean, you know, this is, this is a moment in time. I mean, when we were younger, my father spent a lot of time talking to us about people that he thought were extraordinary. The Nelson Vandellas, and uh, he was very fond of, you know, John Kennedy. But, uh, uh, you know, he had a variety of people that he thought could really stand up in the storm and, and do, do the right thing when it was difficult. He was always, that was something he preached really on, but don't do the easy thing, do the right thing. So I, I, I knew every second that what I had to do. And I didn't know how it was going to, what the outcome was. I, I knew I'd make mistakes, but I was, you know, the one thing I was not going to do was, was to run. And I, and I, I was keenly aware that I had young children and what I did there and how we acted would stay with our family for a long time. And regardless of the outcome, regardless of whatever the cost would be, I, I was not going to leave my kids with a legacy that I didn't stand up. Well, you certainly stood up. There's no question about that. And, and I understand that Herman Sandler's wife really gave you some powerful words of encouragement. Yeah, she, she really, there were a couple moments that I think were, where I was fragile that were actually people, I, you know, I don't know if they saved the firm, but they saved me. And uh, I, I went to sit Shiva with uh, Suki and her family and because uh, of Herman. And I was not feeling good then. And, uh, you know, the thing I really learned about great friendships, and I didn't know it till then, is what was great with Herman Sandler, great with Chris Quackenbush, is when I was feeling my weakest, when I was feeling my most insecure, I had my most doubt, I would go and talk to them. I wouldn't even necessarily tell them what it was. I would just talk around at this and that. And they were magnificently generous, and they had a very high opinion, higher than my own and my own ability. And, and they would be, you know, well, wait a minute now, Jimmy, you can do this. Boom, boom. And Herman Stanley and Chris Quackenbush were very much that way to me. And so not having them, that made it difficult. And then the whole, it was just daunting that night because now we were at uh, Suki's house. You know, it was Herman's house. I'd been there 10 million times, and it was just, it was sad and I was feeling bad and uh, I cried that night and uh, I cry now all the time, but I used to not cry much uh, 20 years ago. And, uh, and, and she sort of grabbed me and uh, took me into a room and she said, look, here's the reality. They had a meeting. First time Chris and Herman ever met without you. And they, they said, look, two of the three of you have to go. And they both agreed that you were the one that could run it. Now cry for a little while, get your head up, get, get your, you know, basically she said, get your ass out of here and go do your job. <laughs> and uh, it's very unlike her too. And, 
it was just, it was like cold water on me and and that was that really that was an incredibly important time now what she didn't know was months earlier i don't know what i was thinking about but i talked to herman about look you know something could happen someday to you and if it did we need to be ready and you need to have this lined out so that chris will take over because I don't know, there'd be some people that might not agree with that, and we got to get that formalized. And he just, I remember, he just turned from his desk, he called Chris's office, say, Chris, can you come in here for a second? He said, sure. He came down to Herman's office, he goes, what's up, boys? And, and Herman said, Chris, Jimmy's having a little morbid thought here, and it's about if uh, I go down, which I'm not going to, what, uh, you know, that you take over. And Chris, as much as I love you, I completely disagree with that. And Jimmy should take over. And I wanted to hear your view. And I want to get this straightened now. And Chris said, I couldn't agree with you more. Jimmy should run. I said, okay, we've settled that. Let's go back to work. Well, you had to go back to work and you went after it. And you not only rallied the people inside your firm, you got people on the the outside to help you too. And how did all that come together? Well, Americans are good people. And uh, uh, it I wasn't so much I got them to come. They, they came with of their own volition. They came at their own desire. Everybody was trying to help us. A friend of mine, I remember, said to me one day, and he said, how does it feel like to have 240 million Americans supporting you? So that, that's the way it was. It was not me. They, they, it was, the, the people react magnificently during a crisis. And they really wanted to help. And so we had either form of encouragement or people that came to work or people that came to volunteer or people that was wanted to give us, you know, business. It was it was it was pretty much across the board and it was overwhelmed. You know, one of the things that you did right off the bat and, and, and again, you know, it looks like your firm could potentially go under and you immediately tell everybody that their their kids their kids are going to get a college education. Talk about that. It's took a lot of courage to step up and say this, this is going to happen. Well, uh, you know, the reality of what I do is, is I always try to be empathetic and feel like what the other side is or what's how someone else is feeling. And I was sort of alone. I mean, I didn't sleep in those days. I don't really sleep much now, but I really didn't sleep in those days. And so late night I was thinking about, well, if, you know, I had just... If, if Susan, for example, if I was going, what would be going through Susan's mind? And the first thing is your kids. And the second thing is your grief. And then your third thing is, how do you pay for all this? So I sort of said, well, let's, let's see if we can make this burden a little easier. And that we, their first instant would be cash flow immediately. So I want to assure them that we would pay them, you know, right through the through the year, so there wouldn't be any cash flow change. And in addition, that they'd be getting bonuses that were equal to or greater than any bonus they had ever gotten, so that their cash flow through the, out through the following February were going to be unchanged. All right. And then the next thing was was benefits, and uh, our CFO had figured out that we could probably get to five years of benefits. And I just doubled it and, uh, you know, I did it. And, uh, and so I felt like, okay, their cash flow on the immediate side and then benefits. 
Uh, I didn't know then what the government was going to do. And of course, they came up with the relief program, which was incredibly valuable. And then, uh, and then the last thing was education. And between uh, Ken Langone and Stan Druckenmiller and Andy Armstrong and Tim Neer, uh, they, they helped me start this foundation. And of course, they, they run it to this day. And the idea was quite specific because those guys are all very specific and very smart. I had said to Tim Neer on the day of the 11th, look, Tim, I'm not going to melt here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fumble away. You need to give me the unvarnished truth all the time. And don't worry about how I'm handling it. I'm, I'm good when things are bad. And he said, no, I know that Jimmy and I will. And so we started, he, we, they, he, Andy, and Chuck Whitmer started this, the foundation, which was designed solely to raise enough money to pay for all the educations. And once they were all done, it was going to be done. And uh, we're just about at that point now. But it, what, what was very good from a commercial aspect, David, which I didn't really appreciate at the time we did it, is that once we paid all the salaries, decided to pay all the benefits, started to raise the money, and then Druckmill invested the money to pay for all the educations, it set a tone amongst all the families and all the whole 9-11 and the whole community as to, God, these guys are, they're doing the right thing here. We, we, you know, there was a spree de corps that was established within the firm. Now, I was always known as the hard guy. So there was probably a perception like, if Jimmy's doing this, there's gotta be the money there to do it. Now there wasn't, okay? Uh, uh, I, I, you know, we didn't have that kind of money, you know, and, uh, um, but, uh, it, 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 it built a confidence and swagger in the firm and it had a huge effect. And then what we really was really interesting is how the larger firms were following what we were doing. So that, you know, yeah, there was a, you know, we're not waiting around here. We're telling you what's going to happen. The rest of us can follow us. And, and then we had this little big firm mentality, which was exciting and it was fulfilling. It really was. Well, that's uh, the old saying, you know, when you do the right things, the right things happen. And that, that seemed to clearly be the case. Jimmy, I know you get letters from these kids that get the, their education all the time. Do, do you have one you could, uh, a story you could share with us uh, of someone that got the education from the foundation? Well, the thing, the thing I found most interesting about this, and my partner Fred Price had made this point, yeah, they're, they're wonderfully appreciative, and it's fantastic, the schools that, that people have gone to and the stories. Uh, we had six graduate from college recently at different colleges, Boston College, uh, Cornell, Notre Dame, Fordham. The thing that they really appreciate is that their mother or father was not forgotten. And that's the most touching thing to me. They feel that we were a, a vehicle that coordinated their 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 life to their parent that somehow their parent was providing this and they're 100 percent right their parent was providing this it was just we were just a vehicle to do it but uh that was the most touch and that was meaningful to me because it gave me a sense that what we're doing really i mean we knew what we we're doing was right we knew it was economically right i mean yeah but but the fact that that they were appreciative that we were not letting their parents be forgotten. That, that was what really was valuable. And also, so many of them, there was a majority of men, talked about the relief that it gave their mother. 
And I, I like that. Yeah, that's that's that hits you right right in the heart. You know, I've never really asked you this, Jimmy, but I'm going to ask you this. You know, what did you feel when we actually took down Osama bin Laden? I was ecstatic. I, I, I wish I could have done it myself. Uh, I, I, I remember where I was. I remember the reaction, and I remember having having a dinner at this member thing in detail later on. And some bonehead was saying how, you know, this reaction in the street is going to have ramifications, and they're going to hit us again. I didn't get into it because I, I don't talk about nine eleven unless it's you know I, I've got to, I'm not going to get into an argument about nine eleven. Okay, and and I remember thinking you know these young people are. You know that that effusive reaction, that explosive reaction of joy in the streets. He needed to be killed. He needed to be stopped. And you can get into all this crap. You know this guy. It, you know we needed to get him. And um, I have talked to the man that shot him. And I wish it was me. Well, Jimmy, you know you obviously did an amazing job with your team you know, supporting your people and rebuilding your firm into one of the top on Wall Street. And you recently sold your, your company to, to Piper Jeffries. Uh, you know, I love getting into the head of how leaders make big decisions. Tell us why you, you, you sold the company. Well, early on, about, um, I'd say, eight years before we did the deal with Piper Jeffrey, uh, Chad Abraham, I was really worried about the deficit. Uh, little did I know what was to come, but uh, and I thought that the only possible way that out of this was they, they would have to raise taxes, raise capital gains rate. And Hugh McCall had come to my, my office and he brought this beautiful cross that was built that was taken from the steel of the, at the at the World Trade Center, and I, I still have it and I treasure it. And he it's very heavy, and he carried it around all around the streets of New York to give it to me and. And we got, we, you know, we, uh, I it was very appreciative to get it. And then after that, we started to talk and he started to talk about, I was talking about taxes and what, th what things could happen in the economy. And he said, well, you know, in the, in the late 60s and 70s, marginal tax rates had gotten to 90%. And I didn't want to argue with, with you, McCall. And so I said, hmm, you know, and I, I didn't believe that. And so when he left, I did what I always do. And I called Stan Druckmann. Okay, and I said, you know, drug this. He said, oh, no, yeah, they definitely did. And he sent me a graph showing it. And that was like, well, we've got to do something here because you know, this is where marginal tax rates are going. And uh, anyway, and so uh, we, we tried to find a partner because I thought, let's, you know, let's, 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 let's liquidate it and then go from there. We, I couldn't find somebody I was comfortable with that wanted to do the deal with us that I was comfortable with. So we then had the notion of invest selling a portion of a minority stake, forty percent, to private equity firms, which were we did too, and they were both wonderful partners, Carlisle and Kelso, and uh, so I could harvest some of the value at, at capital gains rate. We we the partners could and still maintain control of the firm and, and 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 have an ongoing business. And if we were wrong and it was a bad investment, a bad mistake to do that, we still own sixty percent of the firm, and that that'd be a good a good good problem. Uh, so once we did that, at some point in time, you have to get them out, which means either you've got to go back again and rebuy everything, or you've got to go public, or you've got to sell. And I felt like as great as our business was, and as efficient and as effective, 
it wasn't diversified enough to to be go public. So I didn't think the world needed another small public company. And so over that period of time, I had had several conversations with different CEOs at Piper Jaffray. And I think early on, we could have done a deal and, and, and uh, both uh, John Whitehead actually said, Jimmy, you're not you're not ready not to be the guy. You know, this is not a not time for you to do this. And then um, I didn't. And I think he was probably right. And uh, so now at this time, John Doyle was running things. I, I really wanted to just more get into client and deal related stuff. I had spent a long time doing all the other manager stuff, enjoyed it, thought I was pretty good at it. I don't know how good I was, but I had a, a, a way. And uh, so we, uh, we had to find a partner. And we had gotten to know them very carefully over a long period of time. And when the key thing, David, that changed it, though, for me was when they offered this to put Sandler name in the name. And I remember thinking to myself, in fact, we just talked that I had dinner with the board uh, Tuesday night. And I, I had said, but I'm not on the board, which uh, John Doyle is, uh, should be and is on the board. And I'm not, which is totally right. And uh uh, I, I start thinking about, you know, when I've advised people, I, I don't let, I, I tell them like, look, is the name that important? Is the, where the name is that I, I would spend a lot of time saying that this is, this, this is, should not be as big a deal as it was. Well, I can say that all I want, but I'm promising you to me, it was a big deal. And, uh, and then when I was, and so I knew it was the right thing to do. And with the name thing and the fact that kept Herman's name in the firm, that really, really motivated me. And uh, it was a smart thing on their part. And, and what I found very interesting, David, not unlike 9-11 itself, but the calls I got from different people saying how thrilled they were about it. Some not even clients. George Roberts, KKR George Roberts, called me and said, Jimmy, I hope this is good for you. I'm, I'm sure it is. I am so happy the Sandler name stayed in the name. And I was like, you know, I remember thinking to myself, well, why would you care about that? <laughs> <laughs> and so it was, it was, it was really the right thing. And when, and to, to round out the whole story, I'm sorry, my stories are so long. But when I was at the Piper offices in Minneapolis, this the Piper Sailor offices in Minneapolis on Tuesday, the CEO Chad Abraham said, you know, Jimmy, you can't believe how much our reputation, our, our investors who we talked to has been enhanced by having the Sandler name. Which I thought was a wonderfully generous thing to say. And and then I then the man I met with the managed team and I, I almost wondered was he just saying it to me, which I I always trust but verify. I'm a I'm a Reagan, Reagan Republican, you know, and uh, I had asked that and unanimously from the CFO to the president to the to the general counsel there, oh my God, what a difference it's been, you know? And so that really that sort of has come full cycle for me as as really this week. How hard is it for you to not be the man? You mentioned that earlier, and 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 you know, and and uh, how are you focusing your efforts on the firm now? Well, it was interesting because I mean it was pretty tough. We closed the deal in uh, a year and a half ago, January, and it wasn't much long into it before COVID had hit. And the stock, we did the deal at 71 or so. Uh, the stock went to 38, I think, at some point. I did buy some stock there, uh, sold it too early, but I bought some stock. But uh, 
and a lot was going on. And part of me was, I was missing it. Part of me was, <laughs> I, I wish I was the guy. I, I wish I could do this. Uh, but I wasn't. And uh, appropriately, I wasn't called into a lot of those discussions. I think John was, well, one, John shouldn't have. And two, it was, but I missed it. I didn't say anything, but I missed it. I didn't, I, I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't like that they didn't need my help. <laughs> yeah, then, that's a very then, honest statement. <laughs> and then a, but a few months into it, I started to say, geez, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I kind of, I kind of like not being in these things and just, just trying to work on client and productive stuff. And then recently I, I, I never, ever respond to anything, but I recently responded on a, email, which led to a lot of other emails. And I, and I found myself back into it. And then, you know, I think they were appreciative that I was, that I, I need to foul out, which I <laughs> did quite quickly. But, well, I've, I've, I've changed it. I'm not going to deny it. I, I missed it. I still miss it. I think I'd get right back into it if, if it created itself. But that's, there was a time for that. I had that a long time yeah. and I did the best I could. And now what I really like doing, and I'm, I'm very into it is, is, if a client wants to be involved or uh, another banker wants to be involved or a lawyer, law firm feels that I could be particularly good at something, I, I, I revel at the opportunity and I, I give it my best and I have the time to do it because I'm not doing all that other stuff, which occupies a lot of time. You also just recently made the, the commencement speech at your alma mater, uh, Notre Dame, where you basically took the spot that Joe Biden our president was supposed to take. And, and that's such a big honor to fill in the shoes of the sitting president and and then, you know, getting to give the commencement speech at, at Notre Dame. Did you have any trepidation or anxiety? And how'd you get over it? Uh, yeah, yes, is the answer to that. Oh, okay. And, and, you know, the reality of it is traditionally at Notre Dame, when you have a first a new president, they come and speak to the first graduating class, and and I'm sure we extended an invitation to the president, and whatever he didn't come. Okay, uh, I got a call that evening from our president, Father John Jenkins. I said, "Hey, John, everything okay?" And he said, "Well, Jimmy, we have a problem, and I have a solution." And I said, "Well, good. Then you don't need me." And he said, "No, no, you're the solution." And then he told me, you know that. He asked me to do this, and I, I, I said, look, John, I can get you somebody to do it. I mean, we'll get Condoleezza Rice, or I'll get uh, Cardinal Dolan, but we'll get someone good, you know. And he was like, no, I need, I want it to be you, because uh, it's the anniversary of 9-11, 20 years, and, and these kids have had a tough year, but I think it'd be healthy for them to hear, hear your story a little bit. And uh, I, I was not going to do it. Uh, I was absolutely not going to do it. And I called Father John the next day and I said, look, John, if you have 30 people in a bar you want me to talk to, I can do that. Notre Dame Stadium with 25,000 people, with all the academic people, this is not for me. And he said, look, that's it. My mind's made up. And I made a deal with him that if if he got a last minute call from Washington, D.C., I wanted to bow out and let the president step, you know, do it. And, he's, and, and you won't do that. And he said, no, I won't do that. I said, well, that's our deal. And he said, okay. And then he announced that I was speaking <laughs> shortly after that. So he outmaneuvered the Wall Street banker. But uh, yeah, I guess in terms of trepidation, nervousness, I, I was extremely 
And then Sunday, when we were coming in with the chairman of the board, Jack Brennan, and the president, Father Jenkins, and myself, I, I was really nervous. And I, I, I basically said, I said, look, boys, if I flop here, you know, it's going to be bad. It's bad for me. But it's looking like you two guys look like a couple of dumb dumbs. <laughs> and, uh, and I think Jack said, I know. <laughs> and Father John, you know, he turned around and he said, you know, it's absolutely. He said, I've never been more comfortable with anything I've done as president than what I'm doing right now. And that made me think back to that Herman and Chris and to when you're feeling bad, when you're feeling you're most vulnerable. If you have a good friend, they can instill that confidence in you. They can give you that thing that you can't get on your own. But I remember he and he was so calm and confident about it. And, and he didn't ask to read it. Uh, I usually wouldn't write it because I don't read well, when, even when I'm reading something. And uh, he said, you do whatever you think you need to do. And he was just so matter of fact about it. And I'm thinking, man, this guy, is, he's, he's, he's got the wrong horse here. And then, you know, we went in and then it is, his introduction was terrific. You know, it was real. It was basically no one that sat where in these seats in 1978 would have guessed that Jimmy Dunn would be giving the commencement at some point. Certainly not, his, you, know, you know, certainly not his teachers and this and that. And that calmed me a little bit. Um, he said, except for his closest of friends. And uh, that, it was perfect. Well, and you then, didn't, you, you, you obviously didn't flop. I mean, this, this speech, you know, you need to go online if you haven't heard it. You know, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, national media everywhere, you know, talked about it. It, it was a home run. What, what was the biggest thing you wanted the students to hear from you? Well, if you could just encapsulate it. Well, the first thing is gratitude, that you didn't get here on your own. You're not going to do anything in life on your own. And think about who directed you here initially. Think about the people that supported you to get here. So the first thing was gratitude. The second thing was an appreciation of what you've got that you now have a Notre Dame degree. You now have met the people here. You now have part of this. And that Notre Dame is always gonna be a part of you. You know, we have a place where we go, go and pray and think and call the grotto. And I said, you don't outgrow the grotto. I was there this morning and it'll always be here for you. So it's your terrible, you will be challenged. Planes may not fly in the building you're at, but you're gonna be challenged. And you need a home base of sorts. And this is it. And then responsibility. That look, you've had it. It's been tough. COVID has not been easy. It is cumbersome. It is difficult. It is, it is, it is an unusual, ongoing, everyday, seeming never going away, pain in the neck. And, and, and serious. And, you know, things have happened. You had the daily health checks. You had the you know, the, they took down the basketball hoops. I mean, it's from the little tiny things to the bigger things. And they made certainly football Saturdays a little different. And I try to put that perspective too, but there are a lot of, you know, my father always said something one day, I was, and I don't, I'm not much of a complainer. And I think it goes back to this point. I was complaining about something. And he said, you know something, Jimmy boy? He said, this is something we do every now and then. We take all our problems, all the things that are going wrong in our life right now. We put it in a box and we bring it up to this mountain. And everybody in the world puts their problems in that box. 
And then we get to see everybody else's problems. Hmm. You grab your box and you get the hell out of there. And I, and I wanted to convey a little of that. And then finally and ultimately, I wanted to convey the responsibility that they have because they have a Notre Dame education. And that while we have a lot of different disciplines, we're about leadership. And there's a value to a Catholic education. And there's a value to this place. And if it place, to quote Harper Lee, if this place didn't ex exist, we'd have to create it. And you should be very proud of that. But with proud of that means, you know, you, you want to be, you want to be an example of what that is all about. And then just the joy of the day. Yeah. So those are, that's, that's what I tried to do. Well, that was great. You didn't try, you definitely untried, you made it happen. And Jimmy, it's always so enjoyable being with you. And, and now I want to have a little bit of fun, if we could, with a lightning round of Q&A. You ready for this? All right. Uh, go ahead. Three words that best describe you. Hmm. Uh, three words that best describe me. <laughs> that's, that's a tough question. You always say it's tough questions. Uh, <laughs> it's supposed to be a lightning round, Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, resilient, determined, and joyful. If you could be one person for a day other than yourself, who would it be and why? Aaron Judge. <laughs> I've, always, I've, always wanted to, I've always wanted to play for the New York Yankees. <laughs> And I'd like to be 6'6". Six, six. <laughs> What's your biggest pet peeve? Oh, I got a lot of pet peeves, but um, tardiness. I, I, I think people should be early, not on time. Believe me, I was early to do this podcast, okay? Uh, <laughs> leader, uh, the leader you admire most and why? Lincoln. Because what he overcame, he failed at almost everything. He failed up all the way. And the thing I most love about Lincoln is the style. Shelby White, I think his name was a great Mississippian and a great writer who probably started disliking Lincoln when he started out. And in the end of his writings, he, he reveres it. And he said that Lincoln as an attorney would, would be give you the appearance of a bumbling, bumbling fool and was easily easily underestimate and then shelby said until it was too late to disabuse them of that notion <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and i love that about lincoln i wish i was more that way and he was a he was a kind-hearted principled person but he was also willing to get to the dirty end of the pool and come out clean he would he would use his you know, he would use his resources to get to the right answer. What's something about you, Jimmy, that few people would know? That I was so shy in high school, I wouldn't go to the cafeteria because I could never figure out the right place to sit. Wow, I would have never guessed that one. You have a hidden talent. Memory. <laughs> you do <laughs> not forget a thing. There's no question about that. I think that goes back to my mother because I remember I, I had I have a real uh, reading issue, uh, disability, and uh, in those days, unfortunately, and so they figured it out early on, because I brought it home to my mother about why you know, and 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 I wish she had handled this differently, but she took the piece of paper up, and she said, "Who teaches this course?" I said, "Well, Sister, uh, Sister Mary or something," and she crumpled it up 
and threw it out and said, what course does she teach? And I said, uh, uh, literature. And she said, yeah, you get 100% in that course. Not an A, not an A minus. 100%. Who does she think she is? <laughs> now, I wish she had said, well, let's go figure out this reading problem. Right? <laughs> but, but it then, and then I had this ability to just memorize them. Yeah. And so I, I found that there was a way to get AIDS. It wasn't going to be the traditional way. And I, you know, and then I established the way I could do it and hard work. And then I, I got AIDS. Yeah. I wish you had figured it out the other way. <laughs> Jimmy, you know, what three bits of advice would you give aspiring leaders? Don't be afraid to make a mistake, but, as, but that's easy. Everyone will tell you that. What I will tell you is don't defend it. People that defend mistakes go nowhere. And, what you, and it is incredibly powerful. Once you defend, when you say, I did that, it was wrong. They never fire you for that. You know? And everybody in the room says, you know, they're, now they're, they're, they're comfortable with themselves. You've got to demonstrate some degree of comfortableness with yourself. Um, the other is, you've got to be your, your best at the most tense moments and maybe be your most forgiving and kindness. You'd be biggest at the toughest times and it isn't enough just to be calm under, under fire. That's a given. There's nobody that's not calm when it really counts. It's to be able to have the confidence to implement it and be able to be persuasive enough so others will follow you. You know, you, those are all great points. And there's another one that you've really provided me, which I, I couldn't agree with more. And I know you coach your kids on this as well. It's anticipation. You know, my father, I got a lot of great stuff from my father. And I was thinking just the other day that he really did, has, did a better job than I, than I did my best, but he, he was better. And, um, you know, he used to always, annoy, it used to annoy him <laughs> about guys with, you know, that was supposedly a lot, very smart. They love to hear themselves talk and they go on and on and on. And he would say like, the smart guys in a board meeting, they know what they have to say. They say it clearly, but they're really thinking about how is this, how is the other side gonna react to this? What are gonna be their issues? And really being empathetic to what, 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 where their situation is and try to anticipate their challenges. And always think about what's coming. And if you look at what made Gretzky great, as people would always talk about, he would skate to where the puck was going. You know, it wasn't a matter of, it was like he said, or DiMaggio, my father used to talk about, it, it would be almost as if he was moving in that direction before the crack of the back. And that level of anticipation that where it's going to happen, you know, was, was just a tremendous skill that the greats have. And, uh, uh, you know, I got this thing actually you say it's right on my desk and it was, it was from, uh, Ed Hurley had given it to me. It said, overestimate the win, overestimate the win. Watson says that it's something larger than golf. Anticipate a bigger problem. Prepare for an unforeseen hurdle. Expect things to get complicated. Expect traffic to be worse than usual. Presume that the repairs will cost more and the, and the estimate. Overestimate the win. Ed Hurley sent it to me. It's, it's, uh, I love that. I love that. I couldn't agree more. And, and 
Speaking of anticipation, Jimmy, I, I was really anticipating this conversation. You know, it's it's always fun to connect with you and 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 just want you to know how much I admire you for everything you've done and, and how blessed I, I personally feel to be one of your uh you know, you have countless friends, but I, I, I sure am glad I am one of them. And I want to thank you for being on this show. Well, I, you're, I, I honestly believe you're the best interviewer I've ever seen, David. And uh, I appreciate the show. I listen to a lot of the podcasts. I've learned a lot and uh, I've enjoyed them all. And I, I love your friendship. And we got we got we got to we got a tournament to play in a couple <laughs> weeks and I got to get my butt ready for it. <laughs> me too. Me too. Man, that's just such a powerful and emotional conversation with Jimmy Dunn. You know, he really stepped up after 9-11 and truly demonstrated what leadership is all about. It's just truly incredible how he was able to anticipate the needs of his team and their families in that awful moment. But you know what? We don't have to wait for the difficult moments in order to serve our teams like that. We can do that each and every day. It starts with empathy putting yourself in someone's shoes so that you can anticipate what they need. Now, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you know this is the time where I give you a little coaching. And this week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, I want you to intentionally anticipate the needs of someone you work with. It could be your whole team or just a colleague. Ask yourself, what do they have going on in the next couple of weeks? What hurdles might they be facing in their projects? What resources could they need that they don't even know about? Step out of your own shoes and take a walk in theirs. Once you've had that space to really think about things from their perspective, you're going to come up with some thoughtful ideas to serve them well, which is exactly what great leaders do. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders anticipate the needs of others. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be. 